Well, morning, everyone. And we're going to be turning to Romans again, uh, Romans chapter 11 this morning, after our break last week for the Sunday School Prize giving. Uh, the reading is going to be from verse 25 today, but because we had a wee break, let me just remind you about the kind of flow of thought so that we're not just kind of jumping into this without uh, connecting up the dots. If you went back to the beginning of chapter 11, um, the question that's being asked is that, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected Israel? And Paul says, well, no, I'm one of them and I've been saved. Uh, There might not be very many of us. And then he talks about this whole bit in verse 5 about the existence of a remnant Small amount, but there nevertheless, by grace. And then he uses this illustration about this olive tree and says that, uh, you know, some of the branches, the natural branches, Israel might have been broken off because of their unbelief just now. And other wild branches from a wild olive tree, people who are Gentiles, have been grafted in. But God is able, you see that down? At verse number 25, he is able to graft in the natural branches all over again. And that's where we are as far as our reading is concerned. Verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Amen. May God's word uh, touch our hearts. So for the next 30 minutes or so, uh, we're going to be speaking this morning. I don't think we've ever done this before, I'd have to say. But we're going to be speaking about Israel today. It won't be a history lesson, you know. We won't be going over biblical history on the one hand, and we won't be going over secular history. We're not going to be talking about the pogroms, we're not going to be talking about the Holocaust. It's not going to be a political lesson. Everything that Israel does is not sanctioned by by the Bible. Um, We're not going to be talking about Zionism. We're not going to be talking about the West Bank or the Palestinians. But we are going to be having a prophecy lesson today. Or 
The other word is eschatology. We're going to be talking about the future. That's what this is talking about here today. The future as far as Israel is concerned. In particular, we're going to be looking at that verse number 26 where it says that all Israel, future tense, will be saved and try to understand what that means. So you're asking, Are we genuinely saying that we uh, know what's going to happen in the future? Particularly as far as this, this nation is concerned. Well, we're going to have to be very careful. There have been enough cranks and crazies over the years who've come up with wild and wonderful ideas and permutations about the future, you know, and we need to be very careful about that. But on the other hand... I don't think we can escape the fact that the Bible has an awful lot to say about prophecy, about the future. If you think about it, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ all had been prophesied hundreds of years before that. The details about his birth, the details about his life, where he would live, what he would do, particularly his death, even down to fine details about The fact that he would be crucified, soldiers would gamble for his clothes, minutia, all prophesied about. His resurrection, it's all there. Christ himself spoke about the future, if you want to, and we will be looking at this passage briefly uh, during the course of the, the message. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 24, for instance, it's known as the Olivet Discourse. He talks about the future. Paul And John do so extensively as well. We've got the last book of our Bible, the book of Revelation, that points to all of that. And it's a big subject. But in particular, here in this passage, the focus is on on Israel. So are there a few things that, you know, as far as introducing this, we need to know about? Well, look at how he starts off here in verse number 25 with a a little word of caution and the word of caution is this be very careful he says not to be wise in your own sight now of course that's always a danger isn't it that uh, we look at ourselves through our own eyes and we think what a wise fellow you know I am you know it's like little Jack Horner says what a good boy am I you know look at me And all that I know here. A little bit of superiority and arrogance at times can creep in. As far as our attitude and how I look at things and how I interpret things. Uh, let's, Let's just sound that word of caution. In particular what he's saying here. Of course this is written to these people in this church in Rome back in the first century. And he's, he's particularly thinking about the people in the church who are not Jews. And he says I know what you're thinking. We've just kind of tried to summarize that from the earlier part of the chapter. You think that as far as the Jews are concerned, because of their unbelief and because of what they did to Christ, they're finished. That that's the end of the road as far as they're concerned. They've lost it all. Well, hold your horses, he says. You know, just just pause. Don't be so fast in coming to that conclusion. Because I want to say there are a couple of things that you need to take into consideration. Don't be wise in your own eyes. 
And so there are three things that I've just kind of pulled these words out out of the the passage that we read, just so that we can you know we can kind of uh, have staging posts along the way, so that we don't find that everything just kind of morphs into one thought. And um, the three words that I've I've picked out for us to focus on from verse number twenty-five is the word mystery, uh, the word saved from verse twenty-six. And then the word irrevocable from, from 29. And I'll, I'll, I'll just try and have my thoughts based around about these, these points. So let, let's just go to this word mystery. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Now what we've got to remember is that when the Bible uses this word, it uses it in a different way than we normally will use that in everyday speech. You know, we think of Agatha Christie, we think about something that's happened, some murder, and we've got to piece all the clues together until eventually, you know, we come to the conclusion and work out the mystery. Um, the Bible uses that in a different way. The idea in Scripture is that there has been something that has been hidden, but now God reveals it. Nobody ever knew this, but now God has revealed this. Now, I want to give you an example. There are actually a number of examples of this, uh, different mysteries uh, talked about in the New Testament. I want to give you one of them. Uh, if, you, if you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, and, it, and it's pretty obvious just, just from reading it. So, um, if, if, you, if you go to Ephesians 3 verse 2, um, and Paul talks about himself... And about God's grace, you see that halfway through the verse, God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and spirit and prophets by the spirit this mystery is that the gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of this gospel i was made a minister according to the gift of god's grace which was given me by the working of his power to me Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. All right? So pretty clear. What, what he's saying there is the mystery is the church. You're not not going to read about this in the Old Testament. Paul is the person who for the first time is declaring this. That now, not Israel, but there will be one body, one new man, composed of Jews and Gentiles, without any distinctions. They are one in Christ, and that is called the church. The church, Acts 15 That from the Gentiles, God is calling out a people for himself. That that, that is the idea of mystery in general. Now, the mystery here, in this passage that he's now revealing, the thing that had been hidden 
and yet now is being disclosed, has two parts anyway. So let's let's go back now in, in, in chapter 11 here. And the point that he's making, first of all, this mystery, brothers, want you to, don't want you to be unaware about this. Number one, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. Now, we've already said that. You know, the majority of Jews were hostile to the gospel. They didn't believe it. But it's only a partial thing. It's not complete. And there is something that will happen that will reverse that partial hardening of heart. And this is the second part of the mystery. And the second part of the mystery is this. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Non-Jews. The fullness of the Gentiles. Now what does that mean? Well what it means is this. That there is a known and a predetermined number of non-Jewish people throughout history that will form the constituents of the church that will become believers in Christ and then that number will stop it's a predetermined number the fullness of the Gentiles it's a bit like the story of uh, of Noah remember the message of Noah came to the people at that time and uh, there then came a point where it read and, and God closed the door of the ark and the door was shut and there, was, there were some who came in and there, at that point had been an opportunity but once the door was closed the opportunity was over the door will be closed one day The gospel is being proclaimed to the nations of this world. That whoever will respond to Christ will be received. And that there is salvation in Christ. There is forgiveness. But the Lord knows all who are his. At the point when anybody turns in genuine faith of heart to Christ. A record of that is made in heaven. We know that at the very point. The angels of heaven are rejoicing. The angels know as they look down upon the earth when people genuinely are responding to Christ in faith. And a record, a permanent record is made about that. And you read about this in several places. You remember the disciples were all enthusiastic about one occasion when they were able to do some miraculous deeds and Jesus said to them, you know, that's not the thing to get worked up about. This this is the big thing. Your names are written down in heaven. You know, that's the, that's the thing above everything else to rejoice in. That our names are written in heaven. And that point, of course, is, is made quite solemnly in the book of Revelation chapter 20 at the, at the great judgment, the great white throne, when the books are opened and whoever's name is not found written, recorded in the Lamb's book of life, is cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, eternal separation from God. The point is that the names of genuine believers are recorded. And the Lord knows that. And he knows when the last name will be added to the list. And then the door is closed. 
Now that's a, that's a solemn thing. I mean, that's a challenge for all of us today to make sure we have the opportunity to respond to Christ and to do that. You remember when Jesus came to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, he wept over the city. And he said, you know, if you had only known the thing that would have brought you peace, on on this day of all days, you of all people, but now your opportunity is gone. And that, 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 that will be the case one day when God closes the door of the ark. Christ is like the ark. You know, we go into Christ to be safe from the storm that will break, from the judgment that will come. He is our hiding place. And God's church is filling fast, as someone once said. And some soul will be the last. And we have to be sure that we're in and we respond to Christ. That is the fullness of of the Gentiles. Let's move on to the second word. And the second word is the word saved. Taken from verse 25, uh, 26 rather. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And so really what it's saying here is this. That at that point when that number is completed, something happens as far as God's prophetic timetable is concerned. And it moves, something shifts. And what begins to happen is that the focus goes back onto Israel again. Now, I think there are just a few kind of general points or principles of biblical interpretation that we need to pause and think about here before we get into any of this. And the first point, it might seem obvious to you, but I mentioned it because I know, I know some people think differently, that when the word Israel is used here, he is actually talking about ethnic Israel. He is talking about the Jewish nation. I mean, I think it's pretty clear when you just read down here. Gentiles versus Jews versus Israel. The, the, the whole thing about the olive tree. It's, it's clear to me that it's ethnic Israel. Now, however, the reason I'm, I'm mentioning this is that there are some places in Scripture when you read the word Israel, it doesn't actually always mean ethnic Israel. So, for instance, and we've met some of these in Romans already. So, if you were, for instance, to go back to chapter 9, just a couple of chapters back, and verse number 6, it actually says there, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. If you've read that further down, we're talking about people who are genuinely worshippers of God, not just externally. I mean, from the point of view of, of Abraham, he had, he, had, he had, well, more than two sons, but, you know, Ishmael and Isaac. But it was Isaac, the child of promise, who was Israel, who was in that true line. And if you go back again to uh, chapter 2 and verse 29, where it's, uh, verse 28 rather, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. 
Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. So you can see he's talking about something that is from the heart. To be a true Jew is something that's not just external, it's internal. So it's used that way. But I think in this passage here, he is actually talking about ethnic uh, Israel. Um, Now what I have to say here is this, that at this point, when the timetable changes, and it says that all Israel will be saved, this refers to the coming of Christ, when the Deliverer will come from Zion. And when Christ returns, the people of Israel will suddenly be aware of the the, the awful mistake that over the centuries they have made. And they will be aware of the truth of Christ. And in a whole scale way, when it says all Israel, it doesn't necessarily mean absolutely every individual. But in a, a national level, the Jewish people will respond in genuine faith to Christ, probably in a way that no revival in history has ever seen. Almost an entire national returning to Christ. Now let me show you that this has been predicted elsewhere actually. Um, This one I think may well come up, but you, you might want to turn to this one, certainly to note this one down. It's in Zechariah chapter 12. Quite interesting, actually. One of the hymns that we sang had an allusion to this. I'm sure you'll pick up on it as I read it. We sang it earlier on. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him, Whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimen in the plain of Megiddo. That refers to the the death of Josiah, the last king of Judah. The land shall mourn each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, and so on. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin. And uncleanness. Now just, just, just try and visualize what is being described here. The time when Christ returns. And they look on him. And they see on his hands and his feet. The marks of the, of the nails. The marks of the crown of thorns on his head and the spear on his side. And you realize that for the first time that Christ was pierced for them. To quote from Isaiah 53, 
I mean, this, this is what they will say. He was wounded for our transgressions. He, he was bruised for our iniquities. And, and we esteemed him not. You know, we, we, we never saw it. We didn't believe. We were, we were hardened against that. But now we recognize. And as they think about that, look at the way the response is described here. That they begin to mourn. And they begin to cry and weep bitterly. You know, and it's terrible distress that's talked about. Somebody weeping because their, their child has died. Because the king has been killed in battle. And, and they're almost unconsolable. As they think about the mistake, the terrible tragedy of the mistake their nation had made. And what, what they have made as individuals. And the response, you know, I said, and so forth in the reading. But the point of the reading and these different households that are talked about. And the fact that it says, by themselves, their family, their, ch- their wives their family, their children, by themselves, individually. It's, 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 it's making the point that as individuals, yes, the nation responds, but they respond as individuals by themselves. And each person who makes up the nation, they look at themselves and they respond to Christ individually and personally. And on that day, a fountain is opened. Not not a fountain of water. Those of you who know the Victoria Park know the fountain has been restored and the water is now on again. But it's not that kind of fountain that's talked about. It's symbolic. What did we sing earlier on, if I can remember it? On the Mount of Crucifixion. Fountains opened deep and wide. There was a, a spring of God's mercy that that came incessant from God's throne, a mighty river of forgiveness and cleansing from sin and uncleanness. That is referring about the death of Christ. And they will respond in the same way as any of us are meant to respond. This is not something different. Of course, the we look to this event because that's what our passage is teaching us. But obviously the, there is an application this morning for all of us too. Have I responded to Christ? Am I saved in the way that they will be saved? Have I called on the name of the Lord to be saved and to recognize that there is salvation in no other? No other name under heaven given among men by which I can be saved and experience this cleansing, overwhelming fountain that sweeps over me of God's forgiveness and deliverance and cleansing from my sin. It's only when I say from my heart he was wounded for my transgressions. When I look on him and realize that it was my sin that pierced him. It was my sin that nailed him to the cross. I've, I've been living a tragedy all my life and not seeing this. And now I do. And I'm saved if I respond to him. I mean, I mean that is the message 
that is being made here. And that is the application. Now, there's, there's a couple of other points, though, of, of kind of detail that it, it is important. Just stick with me on this, all right? This, this is requiring a, a little bit of thought. Um, of course, there are, there are different opinions that people have had over the years in, in trying to interpret the coming of Christ, the wonderful hope of the church. And I, I just want to, to mention some of the things that I have personally found quite helpful as kind of principles of trying to understand what can be a pretty complicated subject. And obviously, I've only got five minutes to talk to you about this. You know, so if you want any, any further discussion, happy uh, to have that, or maybe we'll do it another time. But he, here are the couple of points. Point number one, the early church, I don't think there's any doubt about this, that in the first century, right at the start, the early church were actually expecting Christ to come back at any time. They thought it was going to happen then. I mean, some of them gave up their work and everything. In fact, if we were to read the passage that talks about the, the Lord's Supper fully, something that they celebrated every single week, as part of it, what they would say is this. Whoever partakes in this bread and in this cup proclaims the Lord's death what? Until he comes. Until he comes. Until he comes. Every week they had that anticipation and it was stated in their assemblies. He's coming until he comes. And they were expecting that to happen. Don't think there's any doubt and there's, there's a number of scriptures we can turn to on that one. Right, that's point number one. We need to see this one. Point number two. There are some passages of scripture that say that Christ cannot return until certain things happen. Now, hold that thought, all right? And let me take you to the passages. You're going to have to turn this up. They're not going to come on the screen. The first one is in Matthew 24 that I talked about earlier on, the Olivet Discourse, all right? Verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign? Of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, obviously, I'm not going to do this whole chapter, but let me point out a couple of things. Verse 15. He says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. All right, so he says, this has, this has got to happen. And you've got to understand that, dear reader. And dear reader, if you want to understand it anymore, you go home this afternoon and you read the book of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. And interestingly, what he has to say here is geographically very specific. He's talking here about Jerusalem and Judea. And the temple, they're all mentioned there. All right. Now let's go. I'm not going to say any more about that. But let's let's go further down, and uh, we'll go down to verse number twenty-one. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. 
And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Obviously a terrible time. Tremendous tribulation. Right now down to verse 29. After, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. The Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And I should have said earlier actually, when I was reading in Zechariah 14, that it says there, and again look, I was in 12, if you went to 14, it talks about when the Messiah comes that his feet will touch the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives will split in two. Now, that's just by the by. Now, I appreciate time's running out here, but let me just go to one more here. And it's in Second Thessalonians, chapter 2. Where he says this, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. That day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and so forth. You can read that later on for yourself. So what's this? The coming of Christ cannot happen, it's saying here, unless all this takes place. So, I mean, how do we fit this together? It's all very confusing. The early church expected Christ to come at any point, and yet these passages here say certain things have to happen first. How how do we understand all of this very confusing stuff? Well, the, the, the way it fits together is that the coming of Christ is in two phases. It's in two phases. When the last Gentile, the fullness of the Gentiles, believes, the Lord will return to the air in what is known as the rapture. That's a Latinized word. You read from 1 Thessalonians 4, which has to do with the snatching away, the catching away of the church to meet Christ in the air. At that point, this great tribulation takes place. The Antichrist, the man of sin, is revealed. And after all of that, Christ will return in power and great glory to the earth. And there are other details. That's how it fits together in my mind. Right, we're going to finish. The point I'm making is this. The hope of the church. The hope of Israel. This is something that we need to recapture and regain. It's the coming of the Lord. We're not going to get to our last word. But really, the point is this. If you look at that word, these things are irrevocable. Irrevocable. And there are reasons for that. Um, Maybe there needs to be another message on this. But thank you for your patience. And let's uh, bow our head in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the coming of Christ. We thank you that he will come. We pray that we will all be prepared for that. We ask that that fills our hearts with hope rather than fear. Help us to rest in Christ and to worship him.
for all your great purposes that you have laid out in your word, irrevocable things. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. We thank you for the reality of salvation that we've talked about and ask that for all of us that we will be saved as they will be saved one day and that we will look to the deliverer, a personal saviour, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we give thanks. Amen.